Hi, welcome to another episode of Chatter. Today we're talking to Alex Smith from the Campaign Against Arms Trade. Now, we wanted to get a real insight into the implications of Britain selling weapons worldwide, what it means that we've become the second largest arms exporter in the world, and whether that actually will affect us, both in the short term and in the long run, in terms of our attempts to deal with international terrorism and dictatorial regimes. Before we get started, we're now on iTunes, so if you want to give us a rating and a review there, we'd really appreciate it. You can share us on Facebook, Twitter, all the usual stuff, and just tell your friends about the show if you're enjoying it. That's the way we grow. So without further ado, here's the interview. So uh, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's nice to have you on, Andrew. Thank you. So um, I honestly um, am quite happy to just jump right in. Um, I want to sort of set out a few things before we get into discussing your work and sort of how we deal with the campaign against arms trade and the sort of moral versus economic arguments for it. No Uh, problem. um, Basically, I just sort of want to lay down that over the last couple of years, the UK has spent three billion pounds or not spent, made three billion pounds or the equivalent of in in terms of arms deals um, selling to countries all across the world that they have on human rights watch lists. So 39 of the 51 countries ranked as not free on the Freedom House, uh, Freedom in the World report, Britain sells arms to and 22 um, of the 30 countries on their own human rights watch list they're selling arms to. Um, and two thirds of those have been to Middle Eastern countries. Um, and we're now ranked as the second largest arms exporter in the world over the last 10 years, aside from the United States. Just to, to kick us off, really, do you, do you think that there's a fundamental like moral problem with trying to work for peace while selling arms? Do you think that they're completely incompatible and, and do you think it's the sort of moral arguments outweigh the economic benefits that w- we get from it? Well, I think there is a fundamental contradiction because to, uh, what we have to remember about the arms industry is that if world peace broke out tomorrow, the arms trade would be the first industry to go bust. It's an industry which is entirely ba- its entire business model is based on war and conflict or the promotion of war and conflict. It's an industry which uh, which profiteers from conflict around the world and which I think may only makes it more likely as well. The same companies which are arming Saudi Arabia today are the same ones who were arming Iran in the 70s. It's the same ones who were arming Gaddafi right up until the UK and bombed Libya as well. It's, this is ultimately war and conflict is what keeps the arms trade in business. Um, and government has played an absolutely central role to it. Government might push the economic points, but actually the economic points are very often totally overstated. We have to remember that the arms industry is actually, in the great scheme of things, a very small sector of the economy. Arms exports account for roughly 0.2% of jobs in the economy. It's 
a small sector, but it's one which has always carried a totally disproportionate voice in the corridors of power. It's an industry which can have devastating consequences around the world. Now, the people who work in the arms trade include some of the most skilled engineers in the world, and we want to see their skills put to good use. We want to see them being used in positive industries, sustainable industries, green industries, for example. We want to see their skills put to good use, not being used to further war and conflict and to um, increase profits for companies that fuel such war and conflict. Okay, you mentioned there um, the disproportionate effects and, and influence on government policy that uh, arms dealers and arms manufacturers have. Why do you think they have such a disproportionate influence given the, as you as you put it, the, the small influence or the small sort of percentage of the UK economy and, and jobs that they provide? Like, why do you think that influence is there? I think there's a couple of different reasons. And the first reason, I'll give not to avoid the question, but I think the first reason is in part because we've had it for so long. Um, it's because... It's because the political consensus over the last 30 or 40 years has been very much in favour of arms exports. Um, as I think that's starting to get challenged a bit now, but that's a point we can maybe develop later on. But I think because the consensus has always been for the last 30 or 40 years towards arms promotion and towards uh, maximising arms exports, then... I think that's kind of set the mood music a lot. And when Parliament has been supporting that and viewing it as being in the UK's geopolitical strategic interest, um, then I think that's kind of in, that's kind of made it almost inevitable. I think another factor is that although the arms trade doesn't isn't necessarily a particularly large employer, it is, however, an employer which has very strong regional bases. So MPs in certain areas will have constituents who are disproportionately impacted by the arms trade. So if you're the MP for, say, Barrow, for example, where the BA Systems is one of the largest employers in the area, and I expect that probably would shift your perceptions a bit. Um, but I think it's all used very often by government as a geopolitical point. I think it's used to solidify relationships with countries like Saudi Arabia, which is by far the largest buyer of UK arms. And the result of that is that it can definitely compromise government policy as well. In the specific case of Saudi Arabia, I don't think it's any coincidence that the that UK civil servants were revealed to have lobbied to have Saudi Arabia on the UN Human Rights Council. I expect arms sales played a very large part in that. I don't think it's a coincidence that uh, the UK has always opposed an independent investigation from the UN into war crimes in Yemen because it's also uh, the, one of the largest suppliers in the world to one of the militaries which has caught numerous accusations of violating international humanitarian law. We saw another example when Tony Blair personally intervened to stop a um, Sees fraud office investigation into corruption in an arms deal with Saudi Arabia. So it does buy the countries a lot of influence as well. Countries who are buying, regimes who are buying weapons, know that they're not buying weapons, they're also buying political support. Okay. Um, just to sort of make another point there on Saudi Arabia, um, 
do you think that it's essentially a, a bit of a, a contradiction given that, okay, so since since 2015, I mentioned there that we've we've spent three billion pounds on, uh, or we've sorry made three billion pounds in in weapons sales. Um, in that same time, we've actually spent 371 million pounds on aid just in Yemen, and, and it kind of seems like like throwing a little bit of water on the fire while you fan the flames. Well, this is it. I mean, any which is reaching people in need in Yemen obviously has to be welcomed because the scale of the humanitarian crisis there is only growing. And we now know that there's been over half a million suspected cases of cholera in Yemen. We've seen the destruction of schools, the destruction of hospitals, even the bombing of funerals, the bombing of marketplaces, places where people are either mourning or people are gathering or being turned into the sites of massacres, we've seen a catastrophic, terrible consequences from the ongoing civil war and from Saudi intervention into it. And of course, any aid which is having a positive impact should be welcomed. But the best thing which the UK can do for the people of Yemen is to stop its uncritical political and military support for the Saudi regime, which is responsible for so much of the devastation which has taken root. The UK has to play a part in pushing for a peaceful solution, a peaceful political solution in Yemen, but that's not going to come from more aerial bombardment and more destruction. If the Saudi military solution was any kind of military solution, then the war would have ended a long time ago. There's been more than two and a half years 10,000 people being directly killed by the bombing, according to the United Nations. Many more being killed as a result of the devastation of the health of the health system and the blockade on medicine and aid. And the, that's only getting worse. If the Saudi military solution was going to work, it would have worked by now. It hasn't. It's just made a terrible conflict even worse. Okay, um, it is a really horrifying situation in Yemen. Actually, it's um, the figures I think that were released by the United Nations. There were t t well, they've estimated ten thousand dead from the bombing, and that about eighty percent of the population are in need of of aid at this point, and that there's mm. thousands dying from very very preventable conditions and and, and diseases uh, as a result, like you said, of the blockade of of medical supplies and and. One thing I what you mentioned there that the UK needs to be part of a diplomatic solution and a, a sort of prevention of this sort of arms dealing um, around the world. Um, and the I, I ha had looked at suggestions that the UK are in violation of the arms trade treaty, um, and that. Back, it was implemented in December 2014, um, essentially to try and put a curb on the international $70 billion a year um, arms industry. And interestingly, I found that the UK in 2006 were actually um, the people who proposed the original UN resolu resolution that uh, eventually evolved into the Arms Trade Treaty. So, do you think it's it's something that we've ramped up in the previous ten years? Um, since then, do you think that's more political posturing that was going on then to kind of 
not distract, but give a good show that we were a- against this sort of arms trade? Or do you think I that... Sh- well, sorry, yeah, just, just I want to hear your I thoughts. Say, I, think, I think there's a few different points in there. Um, the, I mean, it is worth mentioning at first that the arms trade treaty is a particularly weak piece of legislation. Um, there isn't particularly strong enforcement mechanisms, if any, um, in order to get so many major arms exporting countries to sign up to it. It got hugely diluted during the process. I'm not aware of a single arms export anywhere in the world that it's actually stopped. Um, and it, when it came in, it was, all, it was also very odd when it came in because it was welcomed by almost all of the world's biggest arms companies as well. Because to the arms companies, they're not doing anything immoral, they're not doing anything illegal, um, and they quite support the idea of a um, UN-backed treaty which legitimizes what we're doing. Um, I remember being at a BAE Systems AGM, um, Campaign Against Arms, that has shares in BAE for the purpose of attending its AGM. Um, and when the chairman of BAE was asked if he thought the arms trade treaty would have any impact on business, he said no, because in his eyes, BAE was already doing everything perfectly above board. Um, and whenever government ministers have been asked about it, they've always said from the start it wasn't going to do anything to limit the UK's arms exports, because they already regarded them as being perfectly above board as well. So I think from the start, it was very flawed, but in some ways the problem isn't necessarily a lack of legislation. I mean, take a look at UK arms export criteria. It's actually very strong. It says, um, and I quote, that if there is a clear risk that weapons might be used in a serious violation of international humanitarian law or for repression, then an arms export should not go ahead. Now, by definition, selling weapons to repressive governments appears to me to be in breach of that, to me, selling weapons to countries which have been accused of violating international humanitarian law, like Saudi Arabia and other countries in the coalition which has been bombing Yemen, would seem to be in breach of that. I think a problem isn't so much a lack of legislation, but the interpretation. And I think that is, I think we have seen a greater focus on arms exports maybe over recent years, and I think there's particular concerns about the impact that Brexit might have, actually, where since um, the UK voted to leave the EU, we've seen government ministers making official visits to a whole roll call of human rights abusers and trying to negotiate more and more deals. It's been really interesting watching the UK's relationship with Turkey, for example. While the rest of Europe has been turning on Erdogan and quite rightly condemning the crackdown which is happening in Turkey. At the same time, the UK has become much closer. And Theresa May personally visited in January to dot the final I's and cross the final T's on a £100 million fighter jet deal. So I think there are concerns about the direct, certainly concerns about the direction of travel, but this isn't an issue which is unique to this Conservative government. Um, Under previous Labour governments, um, arms companies had a huge amount of influence and the arms were still going to some of the most brutal repressive regimes in the world. There's an interesting anecdote in Robin Cook's autobiography um, in which he describes BAE Systems as having, in his words, the backdoor key to Downing Street. Now, I don't think from that he meant that arms dealers were literally letting themselves in via the 
um, back garden. I think sure. what he was referring to was the level of impact they had, the level of influence they had. He also suggests Tony Blair would never make a foreign policy decision without having BAE on board. So I think that influence has always been there, but we are certainly concerned about the direction of travel. Okay. Um, so say someone's listening to this and thinking, okay, you know, I, I accept that these human rights um, violations aren't ideal, um, that they, mm. that, you know, that, that we should be fighting to, to stop um, war and sort of death of, <laughs> at, the, yeah, at the very sort of base yeah. level of it. Um, but, you know, once, you know, we're not in charge of those countries, we're not, we're not, so we can't really tell them what to do with, you know, their money and that the, basically the, the free market essentially gives, you know, it's, it's not our responsibility what people do with it, it's just business. You know, we shouldn't be putting limits on, on what businesses can do. Um, you know, what, what would you say to that? Well, I think that argument could be used for selling almost anything to anyone. It's the same argument which could be used for selling uh, weapons to North Korea. It's the same argument which could be used for selling weapons to Assad. Um, but the UK is meant to have standards. It's meant to project certain values on the world stage. The government tells us it promotes human rights and democracy. We believe that arms exports, particularly arms exports to conflict zones and repressive regimes, are in direct violation of of those values. We'd also argue that we have no way of knowing what's going to happen to these arms. The lifespan of a weapon is very often longer than the lifespan of a government, and in almost all cases, longer than the lifespan of the political situation it's sold into. One of the reasons, actually, thinking about Yemen, one of the reasons why the Houthis on the other side of the uh, civil war has so many weapons is because they've managed to intercept huge quantities of US arms in particular, which were originally sold to the previous Yemeni government. One of the reasons why ISIS is so well armed is because it's managed to obtain huge quantities of weapons which were originally sold to the Iraqi government and to other governments in the region. So we have no way of knowing where these weapons will end up. We have no way of knowing who will use them in the long run or even who they will be used against. Okay, that's that's a, a very, very fair a set of points. And I, I personally would agree with you, but, you know, I, 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 I like to sort of try and get a fair response to what oh, absolutely. would be. Because as... Uh, you know, as I mentioned before, there's 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 obviously people who are always going to make the economic argument for for everything. Um, then um, moving on, actually, to the sort of implications of where these weapons end up. Do you think that our sale of weapons to dictatorial regimes, regimes who have links to and um, financially and sort of military uh, military uh, sorry military links to terrorist and sort of fundamentalist organizations like ISIS and you know there's there's fairly well documented links between ISIS and the Saudi Arabian government or members within it and, and the Qatari government uh, do you think that our selling of weapons to them is 
essentially making us complicit in a way with the ISIS regime, or, or do you think that's too strong a statement? Well, there was a recent investigation by Amnesty International, which I think came out last year, which looked at where ISIS was getting its arms from and found that ISIS had weapons from, I think they listed 25 different countries, which included the UK and a lot of European countries. And that wasn't because these were direct deals. That was partially because they'd been obtained and partially because of black market and things like that. In terms of the specifics on if governments like Saudi Arabia and Qatar, which have accused each other of supporting groups like ISIS, in terms of where weapons being sold there end up, I'm, I'm not convinced they necessarily do end up going to ISIS in particular. But we are aware that Saudi Arabia has been arming and supporting groups within Syria and other conflict zones. And again, it's that point where when a weapon enters these places, we have no way of knowing where they're going to end up. I think there certainly are, should be questions asked. And I know that in terms of the government, the UK government's uh, relationship with Saudi Arabia, I know that there's been a lot of talk recently about that uh, report which was commissioned under the coalition government that still hasn't been published yet and it looks like Theresa May has been sitting on it about the funding of terrorism and violent groups in the UK. And if uh, we believe information like that should be published, if there are threats coming to the UK, particularly from regimes who were told are allies, then we should absolutely know about it. But at the same time, I don't believe that, I don't necessarily believe that, uh, the, that by selling weapons to Saudi Arabia is necessarily directly arming these sorts of groups. But I think that doesn't make it any less dangerous to be to be arming Saudi Arabia and other countries in the region. Okay. Um, now, I, another point I, I was um, sort of keen to, to pick your brain on was the sort of, there's, there's, there's been a lot made of, of the sort of conflicts of, in, not interest, but the conflicts in ideology between sort of a more liberal, progressive, even just Western democracies and more dictatorial places like Saudi Arabia, um, like more fundamental fundamentalist Islam-based um, countries and regimes and, and kind of our, our own moral, ethical and, and political incompatibilities with, with those sorts of, of regimes and, and do you think it's it's right for us to be doing business with places where we see and we sort of all, all the values we espouse to believe in in terms of democracy equality um, you know freedom of speech that none of them are, are present there do you think it's right that we're even entertaining doing business with them I think it depends on what kind of business? I don't, I have absolutely no objection to trade per se. I think that close trade relationships with countries is no bad thing. But there's a difference between selling civilian infrastructure or selling things like, I don't know, scones and jam or whatever and selling weapons. Um, we wouldn't support ending all trade relations with Saudi Arabia. I actually think it was probably some positives which can come from that 
for Saudi Arabia as well. Um, but we certainly oppose the sale of arms if something can be used directly for oppression. Because bear in mind that when you're selling weapons, you are selling the means to kill. You aren't selling equipment which can be used in the worst of rep- in the worst kinds of repression. You're not selling things that are neutral because arms sales can never be neutral. Arms sales can never be apolitical. They have a direct political meaning and direct political outcomes. Take the UK's relationship with um, Russia, for example. The UK does huge amounts of trade with Russia, but due to the sanctions which were brought in by the EU in 2014, it rightly doesn't sell military equipment to Russia. Um, I think that's right, but that doesn't mean that there shouldn't be any trade with Russia. But I think we have to be asking serious questions about the kind of trade which is being done and what the potential outcomes of that trade might be. That's that's very fair. Um, I, I don't think you could you could ever really make the case that that weapons are neutral. Um, but although you know, technic- well, gun, guns don't kill people. People kill people. <laughs> but it does help if you. It makes it more likely if you sell them the gun to do so. Well, <laughs> very very true. <laughs> um, <laughs> so then, you know, having addressed the issues, what what should we be like if you if you were put in charge of our arms business worldwide what would you do like what, what's what's like the in your mind the the ideal way to to deal with this situation in terms of as you said moving people who are working in the arms industry into new industries that could be more beneficial for the uk and for maybe humanity as a whole um and for sort of dealing with potentially any political fallout from the cut-off of these arms deals? How, how, would, you, how would you deal with, with, the, with that sort of situation? If I was put in charge, I'd be tempted to instantly say resign. Um, but <laughs> I respect that obviously what we're talking about is would be a wholesale change. It, and it's most definitely a marathon and not a sprint. And even if all weapons stopped get, stop getting sold tomorrow. There would still be huge quantities of them in circulation, which has been sold over the course of decades and decades. I think in the short term, the priority has to be to ensure that as few weapons as possible are getting into conflict zones and that as few weapons as possible are going to repressive regimes and human rights abusers around the world. A very good first step would be to abolish the DSEI arms fair, which is due to take place in London next month. It's one of the biggest arms fairs in the world in which 1,500 different arms companies will turn out to try and sell their weapons to uh, military representatives from about 100 different countries, including some many of the worst human rights abusers. So I think ending the government's direct participation and promotion of arms exports and its facilitation of arms exports would be the immediate priority because, as you said at the top of the show, roughly two-thirds of UK arms exports right now are going to the Middle East. They're going to human rights abusing regimes. They're going to dictatorships. And we may be feeling the consequences of that for years and years to come. In terms of what would happen to people who are working in the arms industry, we want to see government investing as much support as possible into positive, sustainable green uh, industries, especially because they're industries which are growing and are only 
hopefully going to grow in the future and the UK play a leading role in that growth. But I'm totally aware of it and I'm totally aware that this isn't the kind of thing which is an overnight change and it would take real political support and a real political will. I think if there's one kind of positive outcome to the UK's terrible complicity in the bombardment of Yemen, it's that it feels like more people are questioning it. It feels like even that political consensus is starting to be challenged in a way which it hasn't been previously. In the recent election, the Labour Party, the Liberal Democrats, the Greens, the SNP, um, all stood on manifestos which would which specifically said that they wanted to end arms export to um, to Saudi Arabia. It's been an issue which has united MPs from all parties, including some within the Tories. Um, and actually, even uh, we've even seen speeches against arms exports to Saudi Arabia from the DUP as well, for example, and the SDLP to site parties in Northern Ireland. And I think it is an issue which is starting to get an awful lot more scrutiny, and we need that to continue and to carry on, because I can't remember any other time previously when the official leader of the opposition has called for an end to arms exports, particularly to the UK's largest buyer. Um, So it feels like there is more political movement in that direction, and that's something which we need to do all we can to keep that pressure up so that we hopefully can one day be in a position where the UK is actually, the government is actively considering not just ending the arms arms exports to Saudi Arabia and to other human rights abusers, but the kind of changes they can actually bring in, like the ones we were talking about just a minute ago. Okay, Um, so you feel it's almost a case of political inevitability that we will eventually sort of move away from arms sales to countries with questionable human rights records or sort of democratic legitimacy? Do you think that that is something that's going to come? Obviously, there's there's a need to keep uh, pressure on on both the government, the opposition and and everyone involved in it to, to push back on it. But do you think it is inevitable? Or do you think this is just maybe a phase that we're going through because it's all well and good when parties who are almost like 100% guaranteed to end up in opposition to to put that in their manifesto. The Green Party Mm. are obviously very idealistic and I, you know, look forward to the day when we have a Caroline Lucas-led government. But but, uh, do you think it's, it's something that, can realistically happen in the in the coming years, and because as you said, there's there's been support from the the DUP, from parts of the Conservative Party, from Labour, from the top down, from the from the Liberal Democrats. Do you do you see that something actually being pushed forward there, given that there could well be a political majority not not just in Parliament but in the rest of the in like a the country as a whole? Do you think that that's enough, or do you think it's a, some sort of political posturing like that we're especially from within the Conservative Party and maybe more? Um... I think that there's... I, I think the word inevitable is always problematic because nothing's inevitable. But also, there are, having said that, there are a lot of things which seem almost impossible until they actually happen. Um, I, think, I think when you look at public opinion, all the polling which we've ever seen, and I'm aware of three or four different polls which have been done over the last two years... Hmm. 
have always shown that around um, two-thirds of the UK is opposed to arms exports to human rights abusers. Support for it is only about 10%. I think there's still some about a quarter of the country is quite undecided and is probably balancing up the kind of what they perceive to be the economic benefits compared to the moral question. But public opinion on it is very strong. And certainly the campaign against arms trade, what other groups need to be doing is mobilising that public opinion as far as possible. Because that's what's moved up the political agenda. I think that's why it's something which has been in the news a lot more recently. And we need to make sure that these issues do stay in the news um, and that we draw as much attention to what's happening as possible. Because if there's one thing which enables the status quo, which enables mass arms exports to um, human rights abusing dictatorships, it is the fact that they do it very quietly. They do it in secrecy. They like not. They like it when they don't get asked questions. I can guarantee, if you were to ask BAE Systems, they would not be off a representative for your show. Um, they don't like to draw attention to what they do, and we view that we have to draw as much attention to what they do as possible. We need to work with as many different groups as possible to do that, because we have to remember that that, that we are talking about a overwhelming majority of the population. I've been involved in political campaigning for a while. I've been involved in issues where I'm most definitely not in the majority of public opinion and have been actively trying to change public opinion. But when it comes to this particular issue, I feel like it's not so much a question of changing public opinion as much as it is mobilising public opinion and moving it up the political agenda, moving it up people's list of priorities. Um, we are in a position where the where the government well has a majority with um, with the UP obviously if Parliament had vote tomorrow it would not vote to abolish arms exports to Saudi Arabia but we need to keep as much pressure on MPs as possible so that any MPs who are wavering who are a bit unsure who have personal questions and personal doubts about the UK's relationship with Saudi Arabia start to really look at it and maybe change their opinions as well in the process. Now, you, you mentioned about the the mobilisation of, of public opinion there and the kind of the way that it's unlikely that if a bill was put forward tomorrow that there would be government support for it. Now, the, the mobilisation of public opinion is, is something that's well and good talking about in theory. Um, there's a lot of uh, policies that the, pub the public are opposed to or strongly support that sort of go in the face of, of what public opinion would be. There's the privatisation of the NHS. Uh, there's nationalisation of rail companies, of energy companies. There's quite a lot, actually, that was in a lot of the uh, in the Labour and Liberal Democrat manifestos that are, are, are very popular amongst people and, and still don't get a look in. And, and to that end, do you think that that report on the funding of um, terrorist groups that Theresa May has been suppressing could be a catalyst towards re-examining the UK's trading relationship with countries like this and that's part of why they're suppressing it or do you think it's just sort of the the fallout that would come in terms of backlash for that issue specifically? I, I expect my specific issue is probably a bit of both. I think that if there's content in that report which would embarrass 
certain parts of the Saudi royal family, and I expect that they almost certainly wouldn't want it to be published. Although what has been interesting about that report is that the voices calling for it to be published have come from right across the political spectrum. That seems to be an issue which is kind of uniting people. I absolutely agree with the point you made that because the public wants something doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen, unfortunately, and doesn't necessarily shift government priority. Um, having said that, there are definitely areas of policy where we have seen major changes over recent years and a lot of social justice stuff on LGBT rights, for example, being one area where I think actually government has made huge changes in response to changing public opinion. Um, I certainly know that if we aren't doing anything and if we aren't campaigning, then I can't see, then there won't be any change. So we have to believe that the campaigning we're doing can make a positive change and can influence government. Because what we're talking about isn't necessarily, what we're talking about isn't necessarily the stuff people go into politics to stop. I can't imagine even the most ideological conservative MP got into politics specifically to defend arms exports to human rights abusing dictatorships. It doesn't <laughs> seem right to me. It doesn't seem kind of like a particular political ambition. And they did. I definitely wouldn't want them to get anywhere near office. Um, what we're talking about is something is we believe people who come from all sorts of political backgrounds can surely relate to. It's not necessarily a matter of economics and who you think most efficiently runs public services or not. And we can obviously have discussions and disagreements about that. It's a question fundamentally of how do you want the United Kingdom to act on the world stage? What are the values that your government's going to uphold? What is your commitment to human rights? What is your commitment to democracy? And these are really big fundamental questions. And by being complicit in so, and supporting and enabling and legitimizing brutal, misogynistic, repressive dictatorships around the world, then that's not something which the UK should be doing. It's not something which you can imagine anyone got into politics to do. We hope that by mobilizing public opinion as much as possible, by pushing up the agenda as much as possible, by drawing as much attention to it as possible, that in the long run, it can lead to change, and it can certainly end the, uh, certainly work to end the government's complicity in it. But I'm also aware that the arms trade is a global industry, and this isn't just something which this isn't just something which needs to change in the United Kingdom. It's something which needs to change across the board, across a whole number of different countries which are major arms exporters, whether that's the European ones or whether it's the United States or whether it's Russia. All of many of these countries of which are arming regimes just as repressive and bad as the ones which the UK is arming. That's a, a very fair point. Um, when you talk about there the sort of need to uphold like what, what we believe in, in terms of democratic norms and sort of human rights and, and the, the values that Britain should be supporting and, and spreading arguably throughout the world. Do you, in, in a time where we have such sort of t turmoil uh, politically and economically and arguably socia socially as well in, in Britain dealing with 
still coming out of the the end of the recession from 2008. We've got a housing bubble. Inflation is mm. going up. We've got wage growth going through the floor. Um, the uncertainty being caused by the poor handling of the Brexit negotiations is, 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 is sort of putting businesses on edge. We've got our own GDP has been down, our, our sort of, sorry, GDP growth figures um, for estimates of for the next year or so have been downgraded. We're, we're dealing with um, needing to arguably cut our immigration numbers down a bit as well. Um, got housing crises to deal with consumer debt bubble like what would you say to people who are saying now is not the time to be dealing with that it's all very well and good you know being like you know in in theory that's all great but now is not the time we should deal with that what, what would you what would you say to people who are you know making that that case i'd agree that there's definitely a lot of certainly a lot of uncertainty around at the moment and certainly a lot of problems i don't think that the handling uh, I don't think that the handling or uncertainty of Brexit negotiations is necessarily going to make that any easier than looking ahead. However, one concern is that actually that could make it worse. And it feels like we're at a point where unless, uh, unless decisions are made in the near future to stop wet arms exports, to stop this cooperation with brutal human rights abusing dictatorships and it's not necessarily something which I can expect to get better and the humanitarian costs could get worse. Um, it's, uh, it's interesting thinking about some of the weapons that have been used in Yemen uh, by Saudi forces because not all of them have been sold over recent years. So many of the fighter jets which Saudi forces are using right now were sold as far long ago as the 1980s and 1990s. The cluster bombs which Saudi forces dropped in the Yemeni village weren't sold over recent years. They were sold in the 1990s as well. And it could well be that the arms exports which would be made today in the name of supposedly ensuring stability will only create far greater instability for years to come and could have devastating consequences. It's interesting when you look through stuff which comes from in the archives from the 1970s because at that point Iran was a major buyer of UK arms, and Iran was one of the main targets now, uh, for arms sales. Now, obviously, relationships with, the relationship between the UK and Iran has changed a lot, but those weapons still existed after relations had changed. We don't know how they were used in the long run. We don't know who they were used against, although I would expect an awful lot of arms sold by Western powers were almost certainly used in the decade-long feud with Iraq. But this is the point I'm making, I think, which is that anything which is being sold now in the name of stability could be used to create far greater instability. could also, in the long term, be used against the UK, as we saw with weapons being sold to Colonel Gaddafi, which were used in by Gaddafi aggressively as well. Um, and then the UK went to war with Gaddafi. So we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what instability it might cause. I totally understand the point that there's already a lot of uncertainty and a lot of economic uncertainty going around. And government has to has to address that and has a lot of very important, very big generational questions in these tasks. But we don't believe that continuing to sell arms to some of the 
uh, most repressive regimes in the world as any way to bring about stability, either for today or for future generations. So you essentially argue that the long-term sort of residual effects of those guns being out there is is greater than we'd maybe realise, and it's not as simplistic as saying, well, if we're giving if we stop giving guns to them now, they'll stop their violence, or that's kind of the point you're making. I think that's part of it. Um, and we don't know how, think, how these weapons will be used. It's interesting looking at the cases that have emerged over recent years of UK armaments being used in uh, repression in Egypt, for example, mm. or uh, UK shotguns being used for internal repression in Saudi Arabia and so on. Where we uncover these stories is because of the good work of journalists. It's not because government holds its hand up and says, oh, look at what happened. The only reason, for example, Saudi Arabia even acknowledged it was using UK cluster bombs was because of reports from Amnesty International. When it was first published, the Saudi military denied it. Then more evidence came to light and they had to admit they were doing it. It wasn't an admission they made off their, because they, were, they felt like they had to put their hands up and admit wrongdoing. Um, and it shouldn't be taking journalists to uncover, journalists and campaigners to uncover terrible things that were being done with UK weaponry. Um, it's something which government should be investigating, government should be stopping. I, I'm not sure if all your listeners will be aware that actually arms exports to Saudi Arabia as an issue went to the High Court earlier this year um, following an application by Campaign Against Arms Trade. We argued that the exports were not just moral but also illegal and that they went against UK arms export law. Unfortunately, the High Court came from the government side. At present, we're appealing it and hoping to take it to the Supreme Court in the months ahead. And I believe that the dangerous thing about that, the most dangerous aspect of that verdict isn't just that it will continue arms exports to Saudi Arabia, but it sets a very negative precedent and gives a green light to further arms sales, to further arms sales to human rights abusers, to further arms sales to conflict zones. I mean, that result will not just have been celebrated in the palaces of Riyadh, it will also have been celebrated in the corridors of BAE Systems and all the companies who will be majorly profiting from disorder, disharmony and instability for years to come. Okay, that's um, quite conclusive. I can't, I can't really dispute your, your reasoning there, especially on the... On the the court ruling. I, I I hope that goes well for you. Um, Thank you. Do you know when when do you have a court date for the appeal? We don't have one. We are putting in uh, an appeal which has to be uh, filed by uh, September. We would hope to be able to find out if it's going to the Supreme Court. We'd hope to find that out within the next couple of within the next few months, maybe by uh, November, and then. An appeal can take however long it takes. Unfortunately, we can't put a specific time frame on it. Although, for any of your listeners who do want to find out more, we'll be putting up regular updates on the Campaign Against Arms Chief website, which is caat.org.uk. Um, we've also put up all the papers which we're legally allowed to publish from the original High Court action. are all available to read and download as well. So you can see, so your listeners can see the evidence for themselves. Okay, well, we'll put um, those links in the description um, below there. 
uh, I, I did actually want to ask about so in in um, in America especially um, just with when it comes to domestic gun violence um, and sort of you know shootings and, and, and mass shootings and a lot of the the time the argument that gets made is well criminals are going to get guns anyway so you know why make it illegal for the people who who are doing it legally um, and I I wanted to get your opinion on that extrapolated on a more international scale like if a regime has the desire to get weapons arguably they're going to get them whether it's through legal means or whether it's through sort of raids like ISIS have, have done in terms of intercepting um, gun shipments or at least getting hold of, of legally obtained guns do you think that there is um, sort of a point there to me it's like well why why shouldn't we be making some money from it when it's going to happen already Do you think uh, that's any... interesting taking the analogy of um, domestic gun sale because in the UK we have fairly strict gun controls and quite right too mm. and they were obviously brought in following the terrible shooting in Dunblane and the reason they were brought in is because the government quite rightly concluded that if it's easier for people to obtain weapons then they'll be more likely to use them and that we'll see more gun violence as a result of more guns um, and that the easier it is to buy weapons the more likely people are to use them to devastating effect. We don't take the same logic on the world stage where, where weapons which are even more deadly than the kind of guns you'd be able to buy in the UK with greater ease are being sold to dictatorships with appalling human rights with appalling human rights records and the consequences can be hugely devastating in some ways the UK needs to apply the same logic it rightly applies to domestic gun sales to international gun sales um, because at the moment that is not being applied at all and there are absolutely nowhere near enough judgments being made about the sort of people who the UK is selling weapons to and the impact that that might have going forward. In terms of the argument about if these weapons are going to be sold anyway, we might as well be ones making profit from them. The same argument of somebody else, if we didn't do it, somebody else would, could never be used to justify kind of any other crime. It couldn't hold up in a court of law. Imagine if someone tried using that defence in a murder trial or something. It just wouldn't happen. It wouldn't be credible. It's something so which... I'm just imagining <laughs> someone on the stand being like, well, I didn't kill him, but someone else was going to. He had it coming, that kind of thing. It's that, it just simply wouldn't stand to scrutiny. Um, and there's no way it should stand to scrutiny either. Um, but it could be used to justify absolutely anything. Um, and of course, the UK could make money through sending children up chimneys again, but we're rightfully, that, rightly, that doesn't happen any longer. Um, the same logic could be applied for um, all sorts of terrible industries, but the UK rightly, which the UK rightly doesn't participate in. And I don't believe that, sell, that I don't believe that the UK economy is dependent on selling weapons to human rights abusing regimes and dictatorships around the world. And if it was, which we don't believe it is, but if it was, and you'd have to ask serious questions about the 
economic priority of government and allowing the UK to ever get to the stage where it was dependent on that. Um, so I think there's serious questions to be asked, not just about the impact to date, but also about the impact going forward, but also even more fundamentally about what sort of, what, how we expect the government to conduct itself on the world stage, how we, how we want the UK to be perceived internationally. Okay, that's, um, again, some, some very fair points you're raising. Uh, just, just finally, um, I wanted to ask, A, um, on, a, on, a world, on a world stage, you mentioned earlier that you thought that the arms trade treaty was a very weak piece of, of legislation. Um, what would you like to see the UK or the EU or, or the UN pushing for um, in terms of measures to limit and reduce the, the size of, of the international arms industry and um, if people would like to get involved in uh, just finding out more about um, the issues we've discussed here um, and you know maybe getting involved with the campaign against arms trade like what's what's the best steps for people to get involved there well I think on your first question I think what needs to be set is first of all is an international precedent and the UK would be very well placed to make that international precedent because it is among the largest arms exporters in the world right now. There are governments within Europe which have taken steps towards ending arms exports to Saudi Arabia in particular. I believe Netherlands has, Germany has, um, and so has Belgium, I understand. Although none of these countries were particularly large, large arms exporters to Saudi in particular in the first place. I think it will take, um, I think, for there to be a greater global impact has to come from a country which is a particularly large supplier. And I think the UK is certainly one of the largest suppliers in the world to Saudi Arabia in particular. So I think that precedent is needed. I think ultimately the government needs to interpret its own laws and the way we believe they should be interpreted, which is to not sell arms to countries wherever it is a clear risk that they might be used in a serious violation of international humanitarian law or for internal repression. But of course, to the arms companies, these aren't ju these aren't just um, these aren't just random countries. They're the target markets. I think uh, we'd want to see the end of uh, events like DSEI arms fair. But ultimately, this is something which your listeners can get involved in. If you visit caat.org.uk, there's lots of details about different local groups, um, about different campaigns, both nationally and internationally, and different things which they can get involved in. Ultimately, Campaign Against Arms Trade, like any other campaign group, is we are the sum of our parts. We're, we are dependent on campaigners and volunteers across the country who put in an awful lot of time and work into this campaign and to other campaigns which were involved in their communities. Um, and we want as many people to be active in our campaign as possible, not just in not just in signing petitions and things like that, but also in informing the campaign and uh, letting us know what your priorities are as well. So I would urge everyone listening to take a look at our website, find out the facts, which are all there. Um, and think about getting involved, think about if there's anything they can do. Even if it's things like science petitions, even if it's things like having conversations, I think all these things are important, they're vitally important if we're going to bring about uh, what is 
pretty major fundamental change. But ultimately, we have to be optimistic and we have to believe that that change isn't just desirable, but it's also possible. Well, okay, that's um, fantastic. Um, we'll have all the links for everything in the description. Um, and, well, thanks very much for, for coming on the podcast. It's been, it's been a real pleasure uh, chatting. Well, thank you very much for having me as well. Thank you. Thanks very much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to rate us on iTunes and give us a review. We'd love to know what you're thinking. You can share us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, text message, whatever you like. Next week we have Kelly Armstrong from the Alliance Party and Joe Scott, who is a YouTuber on. So tune in if you want to hear those. And until next week, goodbye.